The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Terrifying Lies Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Nibo. Today's episode is the conclusion of a two-part story. If you haven't heard part one, I recommend that you go back an episode and listen in. Otherwise, you might become a bit confused. Today, we continue our journey through the universe of Chops, a world where music, adventure, and humor collide. Before we delve into the conclusion of The Beat Farmer, I have a bit of business. Last week, I announced that I planned to give away a copy of Chops, the rock and roll board game, for every episode that draws from the game's world. With today's episode, if you're on the email list, you double your chances of getting a copy of the game. If you are not on the email list, you can register at craignibo.com by filling out the short form near the top of the podcast page or by clicking on the link I have embedded in the description of today's episode. I plan to ship these games at the end of the month. By the way, I plan to give more free stuff away in the future, so be sure to get on the email list. For now, let's pick up where we left off with The Beat Farmer, Part 2. Portia Gaines' journey is far from over, and I'm sure you don't want to miss a single note of her song. And now for The Beat Farmer, Part 2 of 2, written and performed by me. Craig Nibo. As they pulled up to Silo 13, Patricia sneered at the hand-scrawled sign her father had nailed on the door two years ago. No admittance, it read in the unkempt scrawl Wendell referred to as handwriting. He'd hung the sign after Patricia had walked in on him early in his new venture. She'd seen piles of building materials in the shed. Sheet metal, pipes, tubes, aluminum framing, fabric, and iron. He'd spent big money on new tools, a forge, a power hammer, welders, a lathe, even an English wheel. Patricia wondered how he could afford all of that stuff. As she looked over the tools and supplies, he came out from behind a pile of crates, crimped one of his bony hands onto her shoulder and ushered her out of the silo. Once outside, he gave her one of his Class A lectures on privacy, told her to get back to work in the fields. The next day, Padlock appeared on the door of Silo 13. Along with the Padlock, He'd hung the sign. No admittance. The three of them got out of the truck. Wendell fumbled through a ring of keys. They approached the silo. He settled on a candidate, inserted it into the overkill padlock, and tripped the tumblers. He turned around with the lock in one hand. You may not speak of what you're about to see, he said. At least until I finally finish what it is I've set out to do. Push the door open. The cutting smell of ozone wafted from inside. Patricia looked up at her mother. Tina wore the mask-like face that she'd grown used to over the past two years. She took her mother's flaccid hand, felt pasty and damp. Wendell entered the silo and turned on his heel to look back at his wife and daughter. A grin developed on his face as he gestured for them to come inside. Patricia led her mother through the door. After entering the silo, Patricia a moment to register the full depth of what she saw. The outer walls of the room stood festooned with equipment, analytical apparatuses, computers, testing gear, a chemist's laboratory, a machine shop. 
The silo contained enough tools and supplies to build anything from a picnic table to a nuclear submarine. An enormous cylindrical object stood in the middle of the silo, draped with a lycra shroud that probably cost a fortune all by itself. A voluminous logo, a fist holding a planet, dressed the front of the shroud, screened in black and red ink. Patricia's mother looked up at the logo, head tipped back, eyes wide, mouth drawn shut. Went to walk to a place near the behemoth-shrouded cylinder and spread his hands expressively. This is my life's work, purpose of my existence. I realize that this might not be easy for either of you to understand, but there are forces at work in our universe that far outweigh us in technology, intelligence, and achievement. It is consigned only to a select few here on Earth to know of their presence. What is it? Tina asked, uttering the first sober words Patricia had heard since the bank man had shot down the farm road in his Porsche Boxster. They contacted me years ago. First, I didn't understand. Picked up a signal on my ham radio, the frequency where there should have only been noise. The signal was a beacon. I worked to decode the cipher. After years, I finally understood. They were sending an invitation to a displaced flock here on Earth to come home. Wendell clamped a fist on the skirt of the shroud. It is with no small degree of pride that I introduce you to the subject of my passion. I call her the Patricia. He tugged on the silk, came loose and unfurled, spilling like rippling water from top to bottom and pooling on the ground around the cylindrical object. As the silk fell away, Patricia caught her first glimpse of the subject of her father's delinquency. An enormous rocket stood three stories high in the center of the silo. The surface of the ship gleamed in polished metal, riveted in sheets around a cylindrical inner skeleton. An aluminum ladder extended from the ground all the way up to the cockpit portal three stories up. Wendell had painted the words, Patricia, in curling pink letters above a set of heat displacers at the rocket's base. It even dotted the two eyes in her name with blood-colored hearts. Patricia gasped. Tina did not. I'm going home, Wendell said. But this is home, Patricia's mother said, pointing through the silo's open door at the distant farmhouse. Wendell walked to his wife. He put a hand on each of her shoulders and looked her in the eye. This is your home. I know this might be inconvenient for you to accept, but I come from somewhere else, a place called Slaron 4. My kind needs me to return. Tina, you've always supported me through thick and thin. Now is not the time to turn down that support. What about us? What about the crop? What about the loan? Tina asked. Wendell backed away from his wife and fixed his grin. That's the best part. Since my first contact with Slaron 4, I've managed to improve my mode of communication. He walked to a bank of speakers and ad hoc electronics, some sealed in wooden boxes, some glowing with raw tubes and wire and fastened with nails and screws to a backer board on the wall. I have asked them to help me to put everything in order. They have told me where I can buy the best beet seed. This means a bumper crop that pays off the entire loan in one season. The bankers are coming next week. They're bringing an appraiser. They want the farm. I will sell my truck to buy the seed. The elders of Slaron 4 tracked the atmospheric data of Earth. They have checked our very orbit among the bodies of the heavens. 
They understand our present and seasonal proximity to the sun and the precise orbit of our moon. They've told me that this year will be a year like no other for growing. Not only will you be able to repay the loan, you will have more money than you have ever dreamed of. Everything will be better for you here in your home after I go back to mine. Tina stood like a slab of granite, her eyes oscillating from the rocket to her husband, from her husband to Patricia, Patricia back to the rocket. Say something, Wendell said. Tina walked to a metal wagon fashioned from diamond plate at the base of the rocket. She reached inside and drew out what looked like a broken piece of techie equipment, maybe an old computer, maybe a videotape recorder. You used all of our seed money, all of our payroll, all of our living security to buy this junk? She threw the piece of equipment back into the diamond plate wagon. It's not junk, Wendell said, taking a tentative step toward his wife. It's the future. There is no future, Wendell. You've sold our future for an enormous model rocket. She contains 500,000 kilograms of ammonium perchlorite composite propellant, more than enough to hit escape velocity. She's no model. Tina wrapped her slender fingers around a corrugated steel pipe sticking out of the top of the diamond plate waste wagon. Patricia saw her mother take two measured breaths before she threw the pipe free and ran at Wendell. Tina! Wendell shouted, throwing up his hands and backing away. She closed on him at a run and swung. The pipe whistled through the air and whomped down hard on Wendell's shoulder. Patricia winced as she heard a crunching sound. Wendell fled from Tina and snatched up a metal lid from one of many trash cans crouched along the outer wall of the silo. Tina went at him, swinging the pipe as hard as she could. This time, Wendell was ready. He raised his garbage can lid like a shield and took the impact of her strikes. Thunk after thunk, Tina kept delivering blows. Wendell jockeyed around her and back toward the door. Honey, I know it's difficult right now, but someday you will understand. Tina swung again, harder than ever. The galvanized pipe came down hard on the garbage can lid, bending it around Wendell's arm. Tina almost lost her weapon in her ferocity. She backstaggered, trying to regain her bearings. Wendell used her momentary hesitation to run for it. He tucked in hard and leaned into a sprint. Before Tina could raise her pipe again, he made it through the exit. Tina followed him with her raised pipe, but Wendell shoved the door closed just before she had a chance to make contact. The pipe slammed into the door, making a nasty dent in the metal. Wendell threw the padlock on the outside of the door with a series of clicks and clanks. Tina erupted into a rage, swinging and slamming, spitting and cursing. She beat on the door with hard, ropey muscles. After a few minutes of frenzied smashing, her strength left her. She dropped the pipe, collapsed against the dented door, and began to cry. The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. It's for the best, Wendell said from outside. You'll see, it's all for the best. Patricia crouched down beside her mother. She put an arm around Tina. Her mother buried her face in Patricia's chest and let the tears flow. Patricia heard her father's truck cough up as he turned over the engine. He dropped the old monster into gear and drove away, leaving her and her mother alone with the rocket in Silo 13.
Patricia held her mother in her arms until the tears subsided. She pushed back so they could look each other in the eye. He's gone, Patricia said. I'm going to get us out of here. Tina nodded and put a hand on her daughter's shoulder. She held it there and looked into Patricia's eyes, searching for strength that she couldn't herself muster. After a moment, she let Patricia go. Patricia went to work, searching through racks of tools until she found an electric saw with a diamond cutting disc. She grabbed a pair of safety glasses from a work table and dropped them over her eyes. She found power and plugged the saw in. Accustomed to using power tools on the farm, Patricia didn't flinch as she fired the heavy saw to life. She touched the metal door with the saw's rotating blade. Sparks flew as she sliced her way through the hinges. After a few minutes of cutting, the door broke free and fell on its face outside the silo, kicking up a cloud of dust. Patricia turned off the industrial cutter and dropped it on the concrete floor. Come on, Mom, she said. Let's go home. As mother and daughter walked the long dirt road to the farmhouse, Patricia formed a plan. Her father had done enough. Patricia resigned that she would no longer stand for his insanity and lies. The farmhouse felt desolate when Patricia flung the door open and helped her mother inside. Something life-altering had occurred for Patricia and for her mother. But for the old farmhouse, there would only be silence, except for an occasional house-settling rattle or the snap of shutters in a gust of wind. Patricia walked her mother to the skeleton and sat her down in her usual attitude of late, face drawn, eyes on the broken piano across the room. Patricia leaned over and kissed her on the forehead. She stood up and ran a hand through her mother's greasy hair a few times before going to her room. Chanya Salt stared down at Patricia from her place on the bedroom wall, her eyes heavy with attitude and eyeliner. That anti-institutional stare spoke to Patricia. You can do the hard thing. I did it. So can you. Patricia snatched up her school backpack and dumped its contents on the floor. Several texts, a few notebooks full of homework, pencils, pens, and other supplies. She stuffed in as many clothes and necessities as the backpack could carry and flung it over her shoulder. She picked up her amnesty raven from the bed and put it into its custom coffin-shaped hard shell case. She grabbed the case and her little 30-watt practice amp by their handles and left her room. She stacked her supplies next to the farmhouse's front door and went to the kitchen. She filled a pair of grocery bags with as much food as she could carry. Bread, plastic containers full of leftovers, a thermos of water. She added the food to her provisions at the front door. She went to the living room for a final look at her mother, who sat in the skeleton, eyes blank in their deep-seated sockets. Without uttering a single word, Patricia communicated everything she meant to say to her mother in a prolonged stare. She rested her eyes on the woman who had given her birth and brought her up, the woman who had done everything she could for her little girl. Patricia turned away. She picked up her supplies and left the farmhouse, backpack on, amp in one hand, guitar and grocery bags of food in the other. She made one more stop at a small shed near the house that her father had built, picked up some tools, a couple of screwdrivers, a wrench, and a set of sockets. She carried her supplies across the half-furrowed field and loaded everything onto the Ford N8 tractor, using a couple of ratchet straps to stow her provisions. She used a screwdriver and a wrench to get a hold of the flywheel by the ring gear's teeth. With a bout of grunting against the motor's stubbornness, she backed up the engine a turn to free up the transmission shift collars. She mounted the tractor and turned it over. The engine roared to life and idled with angry, stuttering rhythm. 
She dropped the tractor into gear and hesitated for a second. She uttered a silent plea and let up the clutch. Transmission engaged and the tractor moved forward. She drove the tractor across the field to the storage outbuildings and parked next to an ancient gas pump that had stood on the farm for as long as she could remember. She stared at skyscraping silo 13 as she filled the N8's tank with gasoline. With the tractor full, she snatched up a plastic five-gallon gas can, one of many stored against the shed near the pump, and filled it up. Silo 13 cast a long shadow over the gravelly earth. As Patricia walked the shadow, a full can of gas swinging at her side, she looked up, a tall building. She cursed her father under her breath as she made her way to the silo's entrance. She stepped over the face-down door that she'd cut from the jam and entered silo 13. The enormity of her father's creation overwhelmed her afresh. In a backhanded way, she admired him. How had he accomplished all of this right under her and her mother's noses? He'd made excuses along the way, starting small, step by step, lie by lie. He'd let the help go and cut the farm expenses, all in the name of an effort to streamline the farming business. Ultimately, he'd traded Patricia and her mother's futures for a stupid rocket ship. Patricia popped open the gas can, doused all of the scientific equipment and tools along the circular wall of the silo. She poured gasoline on the rocket itself, splashing it as high as she could on the skirts of the thing. She poured the remainder of the gas in a pool beneath the rocket and ditched the can. She dug a Zippo out of her jeans pocket and flicked it alight. She let the wick burn for a moment as she stood the precipice of what would be a major shift in her life. She took one more look at the rocket, reading the name her father had painted on its skirt, the Patricia, with hearts dotting the eyes. He didn't have the right to have two Patricias in his life. Now he'd have none. Patricia would ditch her name and go by something else in her new world. One of her friends at school had taken to calling her Portia. That suited her just fine. As for the other Patricia in her father's life, the one that Wendell had sold his soul to create, he wouldn't have her either. Portia threw the Zippo at the rocket and ducked out of Silo 13. The interior of the silo exploded into flames so violent that Patricia flew forward and landed on her elbows in the gravel. She crab-crawled away for a distance before making her feet again. The metal of Silo 13 began to glow red hot. She walked back to the N8, mounted the seat, She fired up the engine, took one last look at silo 13, and dropped the machine into gear. The tractor lurched forward. She took the private dirt road away from the farm and turned west onto Highway 1. She'd drive as far as Williamsburg using back roads before she would hit I-80 West. At that point, she'd have to ditch the tractor and try to thumb a ride. While visiting Des Moines several months ago, Portia had gone to see a band called the Shrieky Freaks an all-female punk outfit that played loud and with plenty of attitude. Word was Shrieky Freaks had just been signed by Banshee Records, an underground label out of Buffalo, New York. Portia had watched the bass player from Shrieky Freaks play. Underneath all the leather, dark makeup, and thick lipstick, the girl hadn't done anything Portia couldn't echo. Portia Gain would go to Des Moines. She'd start her own band. They'd play every hussed-out dive they had to before the right person caught their act. And just like Shrieky Freaks, someday they would hit it big. At least that's what Portia Gain thought to herself as she drove the tractor along the two-lane highway. She left so much behind, but she could see even more ahead. Her face creased into a smile, half smirk, half grin. The smile that would someday make her and four other rocker girls famous beyond their wildest dreams. 
Porsche game. Bass, member of the Punk Cats. Born in a farmhouse in Richmond, Iowa, Portia learned early how to work hard. Her father, Skip Gain, claimed to be part beet farmer and part astronaut. In a recent interview, Portia disclosed that she rarely saw her father. This was, as she claimed, due to his habit of splitting his time between farming and a secret project that he worked on in a structure he called Silo 13. One summer morning, Portia broke into her father's makeshift workshop and discovered what looked to be a fully functional rocket ship. She confronted her father on the secret project. This forced Skip to come clean with Portia and the rest of the Gain family. He admitted his belief that he was only part human and that his father had come from a planet called Slaron 4. His purpose had become to get back home. He'd even scheduled a launch date that was less than a week after Portia had made her discovery in Silo 13. After learning her father's sordid intentions, in a fit of rage, while Skip was away on a seed-buying trip, Portia doused Silo 13 with several gallons of gasoline and lit it on fire. Skip's rocket and any intentions of getting back to Slaron 4 went up in flames. Portia ran away from home and found a group of new friends. Together, they formed the immortalized all-girl band, the Punk Cats. This has been The Beat Farmer, Part 2 of 2, written and performed by Craig Nivo. For today's song, I give you another smash hit from the illustrious and devastating all-female band, the Punk Cats. I give you a kiss like a razor.
This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. Thank you.